I love that song. And it is a hymn, and it's very hymn-like in its structure and certainly extremely theological about the theology of our salvation. Theology is not a scary word. It means the study of God, study of God. Soteriology means the study of our salvation. And there is so much in there. For endless days, we will sing God's praise. For endless days, we will sing God's praise. That's what we're going to get into here in a little bit. Uh, Junior church. Kids are dismissed to junior church at this time. You make your way to junior church. We're going to go to a few passages. One's going to be uh, John 18, verse 36, and then one's going to be kind of hard to find. It's the last couple verses of the Bible. So hopefully that's really not hard to find. It's the very last end of the Bible. But first, in a moment, we're going to go to Jeremiah 29, uh, not 11, but, but the context of 11, Jeremiah 29. And so I invite you to turn there here in a moment. Um, mine just opened to a powerful passage of Jeremiah 31. And if you follow along in the notes on, uh, that, that are handed out, uh, Jeremiah 29 is not in there. So, you know, it, it's a time of year. Uh, July 4th is Tuesday, if you didn't know. Uh, if you didn't know, you probably heard fireworks last night, and hopefully that reminded you. Uh, July 4th is Tuesday. So it's that time of year we celebrate our nation's independence, and we celebrate the commitment our founding fathers had in separating from England. Our founding fathers were all very, very committed to the cause. And, you know, I read a lot of history, uh, very, very long books about history, 800, 900, 1,000 page books of biographies and a George Washington biography by Ron Chernow a few years ago. And uh, John Adams was the first lengthy one. Our founding fathers were very committed to the cause. About John Adams, uh, David McAuliffe writes this. And it's interesting, before I share this excerpt, uh, so there was an account, and it's in the miniseries made about John Adams. It was made around 2008, where Franklin, when Benjamin Franklin went to France as a diplomat, he, he did a great job. And he didn't have a problem joining the party life and all that type of stuff. He, he enjoyed it quite well. And then John Adams was with Franklin, with a group of people, and they're at one of these Fran- French parties, and they're trying to advocate for the colonies at this time. And somebody says something to John Adams about about uh, joining in in the festivities or something like that. And John Adams quickly said something like, I don't have time for that. And, and of course, it looked like he was kind of thumbing his nose at the people. And so Ben Franklin, Benjamin Franklin looks at him and gives him kind of a look like, you better recover that. And, and this is what he said. He said, I must study politics and war that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. In other words, instead of focusing on all the festivities and and all the arts and entertainment and all that stuff, I must study politics and war that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. In other words, when one generation is is committed, the, the next generation has the benefits. John Adams continued, my sons ought to study mathematics and philosophy, geography, natural history, naval architecture, navigation, commerce and agriculture in order to give their children a right to study paintings, poetry, music, architecture, statuary, tapestry, and porcelain. In other words, he thought he needed to be so committed and then his children needed to be so committed and then his grandchildren can reap the benefits. And if you study or read any about John Adams, the other founding fathers too, but especially John Adams, that was his life. And it was John Quincy Adams' life, too. They were committed to the cause. You know, America has changed a lot since that time. 
Though I still believe, and I, I really do believe this, we are the greatest country in the world. Two years ago on July 4th, I spoke about God's providence in our history. I still believe that. I believe we don't realize God's providence in any of our day-to-day lives. By the way, recognizing God's providence in our history does not mean that we're God's chosen people or anything else because we see God's providence working through Babylon in the Old Testament. I think we need to be patriotic. Last year I talked about praying for our leaders. We need to pray for our leaders. Last year on Independence Day weekend, I focused on 1 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy, no, 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2 and praying for our leaders. Today I want to talk about seeking the Lord's kingdom. I believe it's right to be patriotic. I really do. I think it's right to serve the country. I really do. I miss how uh, patriotic I, I, I used to see so much more patriotism. I miss that. I think we need to be patriotic. I think we need to vote. I think it's a privilege to vote. I think it's a privilege to be Americans and to be citizens. I think we need to care about our country. I think Christians ought to be the best citizens. However, we must pray, thy kingdom come and seek the Lord's kingdom above all else. Uh, So my theme today is come, Lord Jesus. And that comes from the last prayer in the Bible. The last prayer in the Bible is come, Lord Jesus, which is many prayers in one. But I'm trying to thread the needle, so to speak, of how do we live as Christians as exiles, so to speak. How do we live as Christians in a land, in a world, at least in its current state, that is not our home? And Jeremiah addresses that in Jeremiah 29. He's uh, talking to the exiles, and these are exiles to Babylon. They're the Jewish people, but the Jewish people kept repeatedly abandoning God. And because they kept repeatedly abandoning God, God delivered them over to judgment. That was part of God's plan. It was part of God's will. Now, it wasn't his first will, so to speak. He wanted the Israelite people to be, to, to be a nation state, a Jewish nation state. He wanted them to follow the, 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 the laws of the Pentateuch, and they didn't. They didn't follow God. They followed after foreign gods. And because they repeatedly followed after foreign gods and were unrepentant and, and, and even got into child sacrifice and all these other things, God delivered them to Babylon. He delivered them to, to, uh, to Assyria first and then Babylon. So now they're not in their own nation anymore. And in Jeremiah 29, it says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was the mighty king of Babylon, and he was a mighty king. And I'm going to skip down here. The letter sent to these exiles, sent to them, and in verse 4, it says, 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 <clears throat> Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. See, they're not in their nation state anymore. How are they to live? Should they keep rebelling against Babylon? No. Look what it says. It says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. 
Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters a marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Verse seven, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. I'll probably stop right there. They're exiles. They're not, they're not in the chosen Israel place and they're called to be the best citizens. They're called to pray for the city. And that is applicable to Christians in so many ways. I believe in God's providence in America's history. I believe uh, we are a wonderful country and we should be patriotic. And uh, God has done many, many things through the United States in powerful ways. And we should be, Jeremiah 29 applies. We're not God's chosen people. I still believe Israel's God's chosen people and Christians and Christians are God's chosen people. So we must be the best citizens. We must pray for the city. We must seek the welfare of the city of the United States. And that's really what we do today. And as we seek the welfare of the country and as we pray for the country, we must also, we also must cry out and pray, come Lord Jesus. Because the ultimate city, the ultimate kingdom is God's kingdom. The ultimate city, the ultimate kingdom is a new heaven, a new earth. In Revelation 21 and 22. So I want to ask you a question. It's a little probing question. Whose kingdom do you seek? Whose kingdom do you seek? You know, I believe in patriotic, being patriotic. I believe it is good to be patriotic. Uh, and I preached on that. But ultimately, whose kingdom do we seek? Are we seeking the Lord's kingdom? As Christians, are we, are we seeking the Lord's kingdom? Do we recognize that the Lord's kingdom is, is the ultimate kingdom? Everything else is penultimate. The Lord's kingdom, capital K, that's the ultimate kingdom. Look at John 18, 36 with me. You can turn there, or you can uh, scroll there, or you can listen, or you can follow the notes. Fourth gospel. Jesus is before Pontius Pilate. He's been taken captive. It says, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If you're following the blanks in the bulletin, there's three of them right here. My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Notice, Jesus did not have them fighting Rome, did he? That passage is Jesus before Pilate, and Jesus could have taken Rome down. He said he could have called down 10 legions of angels. Jesus could have taken Rome down with a blink of his eye. It would have not taken anything for Jesus to take Rome down. Jesus willingly, as a suffering servant, went before Pilate. He said, they don't take his life. He lays down his life. He did that for you and for me and for us. He let them do it. He says, if his, his kingdom is not of this world, he says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. Um, you know, in reality, he says that, but he didn't even need his servants to fight. If he wanted to take down Rome, he could have done it with fire from his eyes. You know, he did, not, he, he did not need them in that way. And he did not use them in that way. Judas, not Judas, him too. Peter, what'd he do? He takes out a, four, uh, a sword and he cuts out off one of the ears of the people coming to capture him, capture Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He takes the ear and he restores it because that wasn't his way. 
His kingdom was not of this world. Now, does that mean that we should not do anything and we should just wait for Jesus' way? That's not what the early church did and that's not what we are to do. We are to continue to make this world a better place. But we are to remember that Jesus' kingdom is ultimate. We are to continue to make this world a better place. We, re- we, we, we must remember, I need to reiterate this a lot. The ultimate kingdom is Jesus' kingdom. But we still live in this kingdom, little K. Someone through the Colson Center uh, wrote this up in one of their breakpoint commentaries. And it's, it, it's responding to Christians advocating for certain governmental policies and things like this. And it responds this way. For most of the church's history, Christians have agreed that civil laws should in some way reflect biblical morality. Neither Catholics, Orthodox, nor most Protestants believe that being apolitical was a good or godly thing. Apolitical, the A would cancel out the politics. In other words, neither Catholics nor the Orthodox nor the Protestants believed it was a good thing to not be political. This continues. While there were occasions over the centuries when Christians shunned political involvement for a variety of reasons, often because they were prohibited from any involvement, it wasn't until the Radical Reformation and movements like the Anabaptists in the 1500s that swearing up politics gained traction as a principle for following Christ. Even then, it was a minority opinion. On the contrary, for most Christians, being a civil magistrate has always been seen as a high and noble calling. For most of history, most of church history, being involved in the civil government has always been a good thing. This, of course, makes a lot of sense since there, this is important. There really is no such thing as not legislating morality. In other words, whether we are pursuing God's law called theonomy or pursuing some secular law, we are always legislating morality. Everything is legislating morality. There's no such thing as as, as not doing that. No matter who writes the laws of a land, those laws always reflect someone's moral beliefs. Protecting innocent lives from deadly violence, something that occurs in abortion and other forms of murder, is a central function of good government. God created government to serve that purpose. Many theologians have noted over the years that when Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world in John 18, 36, he did not mean my kingdom has nothing to do with this world. Rather, he meant that his kingdom is not from this world, does not use this world's methods, such as a violent revolution, and does not aim at the world's ends. God's way is not a violent revolution. That's not God's way. In AD 325, the Emperor Constantine ended the official persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. Just decades later, in the year 380, Emperor Theodosius declared Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. As a matter of simple historical fact, Christians did take over Rome. But they did it a different way, didn't they? They did it by sharing the gospel and people freely receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior. They did it by being the best citizens, by saving babies uh, that were were going to be um, um, left to die, by giving value to women and slaves and servants and everything else. They did it a different way, didn't they? 
Early Christians showed intense, in, 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 intense interest in impacting governments in everything from the outlawing of infant exposure to ending persecution to the ending of the gladiatorial games. The assault of the church against the gates of hell progresses, of course, through the preaching of the gospel and the conversion of souls, what the apostle Paul called spiritual weapons, but by, but by advocating for good and just governments, especially when it comes to protecting innocent lives, Christians are loving their neighbors. And fulfilling the other half of our calling in this world to pray and obediently work so that God's kingdom will come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So those are very important thoughts as we continue this message. We are to seek the best of this kingdom, little k, little k, as we seek ultimately the Lord's kingdom, big k. And, and so we got to remember that. And I want to ask again, though, whose kingdom do we seek? Jesus does say that his kingdom is different. Jesus did not overthrow Rome through a battle, though he could have. He had a different way. He went to the cross to save us, and then his church organically, the church organically, by the power of the Holy Spirit, changed the world. We must seek God's kingdom. We must pray as he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And again, I must emphasize, this doesn't mean that we don't do anything. We should be the best citizens, the best servants. We should be Christians. And, and that means that we love one another. That means that our love has arms and legs that serve. But in the end, we are seeking Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus' kingdom calls us to love our neighbor, Matthew 22, 37 through 39, for that reference. So I want to turn to the last prayer of the Bible. Turn to Revelation twenty two twenty. So I've talked about how we are to do the best for this kingdom the country we live in, whether that's the United States of America or Germany or France or England or Zimbabwe, we're to be the best citizens. We're to pray for that kingdom. We're to, we're to be the best citizens. It's good for Christians to be patriotic. But now I want to move to the last prayer in the Bible, Revelation twenty two twenty. Jesus says, he, well, John writes about Jesus. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Here is John on the island of Patmos and he's on the island of Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Three times in the book of Revelation, John is said to be persecuted for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. He stood for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and he was persecuted for it. And Jesus communicates with him this prophetic message. He gives him the letters to the churches in Revelation chapters two and three. Jesus tells John things that are to take place later on. And, and, and things that might even be taking place at that time. And, and the gospel is spreading. And the gospel continues to spread. And, and, and later on, as I've already shared, in AD 380, the gospel even becomes the religion of Rome. There's a lot going on, but there's a lot of persecution going on as well. Christians are being persecuted. And the gospel is spreading because the Holy Spirit is leading Christians to be Christians. Christians did not try to tackle Rome, but kept living as Christians one day at a time. And it happened because they lived for Christ's kingdom in this kingdom. Get that. They lived for Christ's kingdom, big K, in their kingdom, little K. And because they lived for Christ's kingdom, big capitalized K, in their kingdom, little K, the gospel, the gospel spread. And the world changed. The world changed in dramatic ways because of Christianity. 
Then after John sees this whole vision, how does he respond? Revelation 22, 20, come Lord Jesus. John is not the only one who prayed that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse, 10, uh, verse 21, Paul wrote, our Lord come. So Paul writes, our Lord come. Paul closes 1 Corinthians with our Lord come. And John closes Revelation with come Lord Jesus. And so I wanna ask, do we seek the Lord's kingdom? Can we pray with the Apostle Paul and with, with John? Can we pray that same thing tonight before we go to bed? Can we also pray, our Lord come? Do we recognize that his kingdom is ultimate? Or do we think that his kingdom is penultimate and our current kingdom is ultimate? His way is best. God's way is always best. His kingdom is the ultimate kingdom. And I want to encourage you and exhort you and challenge you. Be reminded that his kingdom is ultimate. Everything else is second best or third best or fourth best or fifth best. His kingdom is ultimate. After the 2020 election... I was in a meeting with a Christian community group. And it was a virtual meeting. And I guarantee for the first half an hour, it was the most depressing meeting I've been in because all they were doing was lamenting the election. I tried to say, but it was a Zoom meeting, Christ is still on his throne. Christians, do remember that we always have hope. We always have hope. No matter what happens in this world, we always have hope. And Christ's kingdom is ultimate. Everything else is second. I like what one writer said about this, uh, come Lord Jesus prayer. Realize that when Jesus comes again, there will be judgment. Revelation 19 and 20. So when, when John says, when John closes Revelation saying, come Lord Jesus, amen, come Lord Jesus, this is many prayers in one, is praying for judgment. Realize that when Jesus comes again, he will dry our tears. Revelation 21, four, he will dry our tears. So we're praying for judgment. We're praying that Jesus dries our tears. In this world, we will have tribulation, John 16, 33, but one day he will make it right. Revelation 21, 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And we are praying, come Lord Jesus, come. We're praying for that day when he will dry our tears. Realize when Jesus comes again, he will end our pain. He will end our pain. That's the same verse, Revelation 21, 4. Realize when Jesus comes again, he will put death to death. He will put death to death. It'll be gone. Realize when Jesus comes, he will get rid of sin and we will be like him. First John 3, 2, we will be like him. In Matthew 13, 41 through 42, Jesus says, the son of man, that's, that's talking about him. <clears throat> the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and, and he'll throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When Jesus comes again, he's gonna get rid of sin. No more sin. No more causes of sin. No more causes of sin. Everything will be made right. When Jesus comes, he'll make all things new. Revelation 21.1. Come, Lord Jesus, is many prayers in one. Come, Lord Jesus, is a prayer for Jesus. It's, it's not just a prayer to get rid of all causes of sin, though that too. It's not just a prayer for judgment, though that too. It's not just a prayer that God dries our tears, though that too. It's not just a prayer to put death to death, though that too. It's a prayer for him. 
It's a prayer for Jesus's presence with us. It's a prayer for the new heaven and new earth. He will dwell with us. Literally, he will be with us. I think sometimes we want all of heaven, but not Jesus. Heaven won't be heaven without Jesus. He will bring about his ultimate kingdom with the new heaven and new earth, and it will be the ultimate kingdom. I like what one writer shares. The burning heart of John's three-word plea is not for what Jesus does, but for who he is. This is clear throughout the book of Revelation. The world to come is a world to want because Jesus lives there. John's prayer, after all, come Lord Jesus, is response to Jesus, promising three times in the previous verses, behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. Surely I am coming soon. Jesus had said that and John is yearning for it. Do we yearn for Jesus to come again? Are we yearning for everything to be made right? D.A. Carson, a theologian, would talk with a man who was suffering through many, many, many things. And one day he called him up. He was in Australia, down under. And one day he called him up and he said, how are you doing? And he said something like, I'm not dealing with anything a good rapture won't take care of. Someday God will make everything right. Now the rapture will actually, I believe, happen a few years before that. Or, but someday he's gonna make it all new. He's gonna make it all right. He's gonna redeem everything. Come Lord Jesus. Randy Alcorn shares, nothing is more often misdiagnosed in our homesickness for heaven. We think, that we, want, we think what we want is sex, drugs, alcohol, a new job, a raise, a doctorate, a spouse, a large screen television, a new car, a cabin in the woods, a condo in Hawaii. What we really want is a person we were made for, Jesus, in the place we were made for, heaven. Nothing less can satisfy us. We may imagine we want a thousand different things, but God is the one we really long for. His presence brings satisfaction. His absence brings thirst and longing. Our longing for heaven is a longing for God. And we cry out, come Lord Jesus. Some of our, our New Testaments keep the Aramaic word Maranatha. If you ever see Maranatha Bible Church, Maranatha means come Lord Jesus. Are we yearning for him? Now look back at Revelation twenty two twenty. 20. As we read a moment ago. But look up a few verses. Look at verse 17. The spirit and the bride, the Holy Spirit and the bride, which is a church. You're part of the bride. If you're a Christian, you're part of the bride. The Holy Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And that is an allusion to Isaiah 55, one. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk with come buy wine and milk without money, without price. When Jesus comes, he'll make all things right. When you have a thirst, he's gonna be the ultimate satisfaction. He's gonna take care of everything. We will have the millennial reign, but when he comes, and the new heaven and the new earth come, all will be made right. And he is calling for us to come. Jesus' kingdom will be awesome. And I think it's right and good to celebrate Independence Day. But as a Christian, we always celebrate as exiles. We always celebrate it remembering that this is not the ultimate kingdom. We always celebrate it remembering everything else is just trying our best to do government in a fallen, depraved world. And we act like this is our hope. 
When we, when we act like if our political leaders don't get elected, that our hope is gone, we may speak volumes about our faith. And a pastoral comment would be we need to repent because we may speak volumes about our hope and we are a terrible witness. We're a terrible witness because we've forsaken the ultimate hope for the penultimate hope. We've forsaken the ultimate kingdom, capital K, Jesus' kingdom, for a second best kingdom. And it's a great second best. The United States, I believe, has been a great second best, and I'm thankful for it, but it is second best. Marshall Siegel, writing on Desiring God, shares, when Jesus comes, we will eat and drink and enjoy without end. Hunger and thirst will become distant memories. If sorrows have robbed you of sleep, if pain has made even normal days hard, if death has taken ones you love, if life has sometimes seemed stacked against you, if you can't shake a restless ache for more, then come and eat with him. This world may be the only world you've known, but a better world is coming and there's still room at the table. A better world is coming. It's Jesus' ultimate kingdom. And I encourage you, I challenge you, I exhort you, seek his kingdom. Cry out, come Lord Jesus, pray for his kingdom. So I began this sermon with a quote from John Adams. I found an important quote. It's an important quote about dedication, the dedication of our founding fathers. But that quote does not only apply to the founding of our country. It applies to us as people. The diligence of our founding fathers must be appreciated. God used them to build up an amazing country. Of course, it would not have happened except by God. So we are to pray and seek his kingdom. But this does not mean we bury our head in the sand and do nothing now. We, I believe the United States is the greatest country in the world. I believe we should be patriotic. We are to pray for God's kingdom. And while we pray and seek God's kingdom, we should live as the best citizens in this kingdom. Remember, it's a kingdom, little k. It's a kingdom, little k. And we can follow Jeremiah 29's advice. Seek the welfare of the city. Pray for the city. Be the best citizens. Christians transformed Rome where they had no vote and they had no privileges. We have those privileges. But Christians transformed Rome organically by saving lives, by, 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 being, by spreading the gospel. And in the end, we must seek God's kingdom we must cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come. That will be when everything is made right. The question is, will you be there? Have you received him as Lord and Savior? Are you treasuring him as your Savior? Are you more encouraged by the hope of the gospel than the discouragement of the things we face in this life? I encourage you to think about those things. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your word and the hope that you give us. I thank you, Lord Jesus, so much that we always have hope, that as Christians, we always have hope. We are never without hope. You are coming again and you will make things new and you will make things right. But Lord God, as your word shares in 2 Peter 3, 9, the reason you have not come again is because you're waiting for more to be saved. You're waiting for us to share the gospel. You are waiting for more to be saved because if you came today, which maybe you will, but when you come, that means others don't have the opportunity or may have less opportunities to receive you as Lord and Savior. So Lord Jesus, may this be both an encouragement and a rallying cry for Christians, an encouragement that we always have hope, 
You will dry our tears. You will put death to death. You will get rid of sickness and illness, pain and suffering. You, you will dwell with us. We will be with you. I pray that's an encouragement. If it's not, I don't know what is. But also, may this also be a rallying cry to spread the gospel. Encourage us in the faith this week. And Lord God, we do pray for our country. Lord God, I believe the best thing that Christians can do for our country is spread the gospel. You're the hope of the world. We need to spread the gospel. Compel and convict us of the hope of the gospel. May we have Christ-centered conversations with people this week. May we water the conversations others have had. May we plant seeds of the gospel. But may we also have the privilege, the opportunity, the awesome opportunity to see people come to know you as Lord and Savior this week. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.